don't think I told you my name earlier. My name's Buddy. Um, it's my privilege to serve as one of the pastors here and uh, to be with you guys this morning and for us to be in God's Word. Um, if you have a copy of God's Word, and I would encourage you, if you have it, to bring it on a weekly basis. Uh, often we'll put them on the screen, but don't depend on that. I'd, I'd ra- much rather you have this thing and be like my mom's Bible where you can't read it because you underline and circle and square and star so that God's Word would be taken in, we give it attention, and that then we live it out. That's actually going to be the challenge of today and this next month, um, a short series. And um, it's going to be on making disciples. This year we're in a... Um, a pattern of once a month highlighting a different spiritual discipline. Some of them are the ones we do on our own, meditating on God's Word alone. Uh, prayer is kind of both alone as well as together. But as we're in the fall here, several of these are more of what we do when we gather or when we um, scatter to our homes and when we are strengthening one another for the purposes God has given us. And so today particularly is one of those um, DTRs, if you will. Uh, that's an old term um, that is, is something if you're in a relationship and you're dating and you're like, ooh, it feels like we're getting more serious. At least one of you understands you need to have a DTR. Like, where are we? Usually it's the guy who clues in later that we haven't defined much, right? And, and I, what I want this today to be is one of those that's a helpful define the relationship, our relationship together with the Lord and what he has given us, but also your own relationship with the Lord as it will be very plain on the page what he has commanded us, charged us to do as we are his followers. And so then as he's going to give us kind of a DTR, uh, where are we in this relationship? Um, It's not a, you know, rolling his eyes and doing this. It's a, come on. Come back to this. And particularly, I know this, um, we tend to operate instead of January through December, we tend to operate on school, like the beginning of school is kind of the beginning of the year. And I know that many of us have intentions of hitting reset. Maybe there were some things you said, I want to I want to pursue these endeavors this year in 2023, and I want to grow in this way, you know, Physically, I want to shrink in this way physically, or I want to strengthen in this way physically. I want to grow in this way in my career and sharpening my skills and working on my craft. I, I want to also grow spiritually, and there's some clutter that needs to just be decluttered. And in the beginning of the school year, there's kind of that, even though the kids sort of hate it, you sort of love it because it's a time to hit reset and be about things that really matter. And yet I know that we've already been at it a couple of weeks, and Probably many of those, let's hit reset, things have begun to fade. So I hope today is actually an invitation to not let those things fade, not say, see, there I go again. I can never make progress. The Lord's like, wherever you are, let's start there and move forward. I know you just got comfortable, and I'm going to have you stand. We're going to read two verses from Matthew 28. Um, If you're newer here, our mission as a church at Allen Bible Um, is to live out Christ's great commandment and great commission, the great commandment. Uh, When Jesus was asked, hey, what's the the biggest commandment out there, the supreme one? He said, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. He put those two together. So it's love God, love your neighbor. And then what any church should be about and what we seek to be about and what we're called to be is we are to make disciples. That's, this is where it comes from. This is the Great Commission. We're going to read it out loud together. And as we do, ask yourself, where are you in living this out? Because we've said our mission is not to think about, it's to live out his Great Commission, Great Commandment and Great Commission. Let's read this together. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to notice before you sit down. It says, I'm with you, uh, when, when you're, I'm with you even to the end of the age. I've got your back. But what he's saying is, I've got your back if you've got my mission in your sights, okay? It's not he's abandoning you. I'm saying you can especially count on him as we go venturing into what we all feel inadequate to do, okay? Thank you. you. may be seated. Well, that's God's word. It's plain on the page. It's often painful to live out. It's also painful to look in the mirror and see that mirror and see where am I not living that out. And yet what I want to encourage you is that person that I hope came to your mind when you thought of, who are you thankful for that invested in you? They felt as inadequate or more, felt more inadequate than you feel right now in terms of how would God ever use me to influence someone else, encourage someone else to grow in Christ? They felt that. They thought that. Even after you began to make progress, they still doubted themselves. They still thought, I don't have much in my bag. And the Lord knows that, but the Lord knows how he made you for the purposes, the purposes for which he made you, which will always include whose. For whom has he made you? For whom does he have uh, intend to be on your radar when he says, go and make disciples? What we're going to look at today is, um, I said, this is the mission of the church, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the charge he gave his disciples after his resurrection and before his ascension. But how can we live it out so that it's not a great omission in our lives? A tragic neglect, a forgotten assignment. To help us as a church and each of you, and myself included, as commissioned Christ followers, you are commissioned. We'll take a fresh look at Jesus' why and way of making disciples, and we'll try to follow his lead. That's what we're going to do today. We're actually going to do four weeks on this. Um, we're going to spill into um, continuing Jesus' pattern through the Apostle Paul, and then the Apostle Paul saying, and here's how you go about this as a local church so that we can be more faithful to this commission. Now, if you're feeling like, man, I'm not even on the radar of that. I already feel horrible. This is not a guilt thing, okay? What I want to tell you is, this isn't to say, okay, good, look at how many others are not doing anything. Um, it's more to just go, wow, it's a sobering reality. Um, our elders were, uh, were sent an article recently, Barna and some other did surveys of the church in America particularly, and of what Jesus is calling us to, to, to have a robust disciple-making culture as a church. Only 5% of U.S. churches 
just on basic biblical parameters and measurements of what it looks like, only 5% are living this out. With all the resources, with all the things at our fingertips, only 5%. Again, that's just the statistic, but what I want to say is we, we, we want to make sure we're in that, <laughs> that not, not in comparison, but we want to be a part of those who are growing as disciple makers. Intentionally, we're not calling this, um, this way of Jesus this month as discipleship. That sounds like a noun that's stagnant. It's making disciples or disciple making. And really what we're after is making disciple makers, where you and I invest in someone else so much so that they will live out the Great Commission and make disciples. We'll talk about that more in coming weeks. But today I want to look at the why of Jesus' disciple making uh, and the way. And where we're going to get with um, the, the why is turn to John 17. Um, you know, they say last words are lasting words. These are some of Jesus' last words before the cross. They're not his last words, but they're, they're with his last words with his men within earshot. He knows he's passing the baton to them. He's, he's poured out his life to them. He knows he's coming to the end. It says he loved them to the end. He got down and he washed their feet. Then he gave them some instruction. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. But in John 17, we get to hear the prayer of Jesus. In fact, we get to hear the throb, the, the purposed throb of his life, the God-given assignment that he gave his life to and then gave his life for. And the why of disciple-making has two questions and two defining principles. The two questions I'm going to raise from John 17 and then the two questions will come from a couple other spots in the Gospels, and we're going to kind of move like lightning around today, and we'll make up ground for where everybody didn't get today in the coming weeks, all right? But the, my first question is, if Jesus came to be the Savior of the world, which he did, why then did he spend his time on earth in a very small geographical area? He didn't go very far at all. All those places that you're like, man, that's my bucket list, and you feel like, well, I'm a loser because my friends have gone to 50. And I'm... Jesus went in a very small geographical area. Why did he do that? And why was most of his time spent with only a very small group of men? Let's read. Well, let me give you the second question, then we'll read to answer both questions. Second question so not only if he became to be the savior of the world, why do you have a small area with a small group of men? Second question is if believing in Jesus is the only way to have an eternally secure relationship with God for you and for me, then after we've come to trust him as savior, why aren't you and I instantly zapped to heaven? Well, the answer to the first question, why such a small area, Jesus, with such a small group of men, you're supposed to be the savior of the world? We can see it and hear it in his prayer in John 17, verses 4 through 6. He's talking to his heavenly Father. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Pause. He's praying this before he goes to the cross. He's, he's saying, I've accomplished the work which you have given me to do. 
Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The answer to the first question of why, if he's the Savior of the world, why such a small area and such a small group of men? Well, the answer to it relates to the scope of Jesus' work. Yes, the scope of Savior of the world, but he can say, I accomplished the work you've given me to do, and yes, it doesn't mean lop off the cross. This is with that in view. He knows he's going to go there. He knows it will become a finished work. He can say, it is finished. But there's something that we should not miss, which he says, I accomplished the work which you give me to do. And then he says, the men you gave me, I gave them your word, I invested in them, and so I have accomplished it. I have faithfully fulfilled it. The scope of his work was appointed men. Appointed men. God had appointed certain men, and he poured his life into these men. He had a focused investment on a few, and he did that before he went to his appointed death. Yes, they're both important. They're both part of his mission. But I don't want us to miss that a big part of his mission was he knew that the kingdom would come and yet not in its fullness and he would ascend and he would return later for it to come in its full consummation. And so there's an in-between time in which he's going to pass the baton to these men whom God gave him. And he said, I have poured into them, these appointed men, before my appointed death, which is about to happen. The second question I ask is why aren't we just instantly zapped to heaven if once you believe in Jesus, I mean, you got it squared away, ticket to heaven, punched. Why aren't we immediately zapped to heaven? Well, that reveals the sharing of Jesus' work that he intends and God intends and commands of us. John 17, later in his prayer, verses 18 to 20, wish we could read more. But he says, as you sent me into the world, speaking to his father again, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself. I set my apart, set myself apart for the purpose of devoting myself to them and getting them to this point where they would be sent. Just giving you some um, explanation there, sorry. Verse 19, for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also might be sanctified in truth, set apart in God's truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also who believe in me through their word. When we read the Great Commission, go therefore um, make disciples of all nations, we could ask, well, is that just for them? Well, no, because Jesus in his prayer in John 17 said, I don't pray for only them, but all those who come to believe that you sent me through them. And you can keep trickling that all the way down to you. Whoever that person was, maybe it wasn't the person that, that God used to lead you to the Lord, but maybe they really helped you at a, an infant level and grow you along. But whoever that was, was in the long trail, the ripple effect of God answering Jesus' prayer. And Jesus knowing, ultimately, God's game plan was for multiplication. It was not for Jesus to come and go, bring magic wand, all of you come with me to heaven. It was, I'm going to invest in these few. In fact, one of them didn't make it. 
So Jesus failed at discipleship of you. Well, not really. That's sorry. That'd be blasphemous. I'm not meaning that. But I, but it does give me hope that not everybody that you invest in will be responsive. Will honor God. And so he invests in them, and he can say, "I've sent them into the world." So this is the sharing of his work, the scope of his work. He said, yes, I'm going to the cross, and that's going to be for everyone, but I'm going to pour myself into those because your game plan has always been for investing in a few who will multiply out and infect and influence and represent me and my mission elsewhere in the world. But the sharing of the work, these were his God-given men that he poured into. He imparted not only God's truth, but his own life. Because he knew all along he'd be passing the baton to them. And he had a process in mind so that they would become like him. So that he could send them out to share in his work. Of sharing his message of God's grace and love. And he knows that his hour is now coming. He must do the work that only he can do. The once for all sacrifice of his life on the cross. That's not part of our work. It's a work we couldn't do, and he paid our debt that we couldn't pay, laying down his life so that we might live in and believe in him. So he prays for his men before the cross, but after the cross and after conquering death, the resurrected Jesus commissioned his men to share in the work of making disciples, which is what we read earlier. Go, therefore. And the main verb in that is make disciples. It's going, baptizing, and teaching or how we go about making disciples. We're not going to splice that any more than that. But I just want you to know, if you're reading that, just here, make disciples, make disciples, make disciples. Don't know how to do it? Keep hearing it. Make disciples, make disciples. Disciples, in the most basic form of what the word means, is learner. It means one who is a pupil, one who is a student. One who follows another, particularly in their culture, and they call Jesus this sometimes, they followed a rabbi. But it simply means I am one who is now posturing myself and also pursuing relationship with you, and I'm trying to get around you as much as I can because I want to learn from you. That is a disciple. If we're to go to make disciples, we need to kind of know what we're looking to make. But in order to make one, we also have to first be one. And so one simple question is in terms of where the define the relationship is, where are you in your just teachability? Are you, are, you, are you showing up on a daily basis to say, teach me, show me, challenge me, encourage me. I want to learn. I want to grow. I want to be like you. So those were the two questions Jesus knew the scope and the sharing of his work that God always intended, and he intended for it to ripple out even to this day, this very day. And then he intends for it to keep, continue to ripple through you and me. And there are two defining principles of discipleship that I want to uh, put out to you. And these are part of the why, if we are to go about making disciples and why was Jesus doing it, and, and why did he do it the way he did it. We'll talk about the way in a moment. But there are two whys, and the first, uh, in terms of principles, the first defining principle is that you will become like your teacher. You will become like your teacher. Luke 6, 
um, which is uh, sort of tucked in after Jesus appoints um, some of his disciples to be apostles, which means you're going to be my sent ones. Now I'm narrowing my focus. And he gives the Sermon on the Plain, which is also Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, kind of tucked in there as he's talking about his mission, what it looks like and characteristics of his kingdom and those who represent him. He says, be careful who you follow. If you're, you know, the blind leading the blind is a dangerous thing. But then the next verse, he says, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Um, many of you went to a meet the teacher night uh, a few weeks ago. If you've got little ones, and you know this principle, you will become like your teacher. And so therefore, some of you are like, I need to figure out who this teacher is. I need to figure out what you're going to teach. I need to figure out, I mean, can I tell in a few moments? Are you warm? Are you serious? Are you together? Are you discombobulated? So now i got to figure out how to help my child be organized because you, you're a mess. What are you going to teach my child? Because I know by the end of the year, you will have rubbed off on them. And you will have poured into them certain information, certain content. And so we know this principle, jumping out of the Bible, you will become like your teacher. Um, you know, and then our expectation is, is that this same principle, that you will become like your teacher. If someone, uh, have a brother-in-law who's now becoming an electrical engineer, but he's an electrician by trade, and he um, trained to be that. When you go to electrician school, what do you expect to come out? An electrician, right? Uh, not an author. Now, electricians can be authors, but it's a hobby. If, if, if someone is in, in, in med school, I've talked to a few of you guys about, you know, residencies. I would love for our church to become more and more like a teaching hospital in this very issue. What do you expect? Of, and, and what does a person paying all that money and going through all that agony for all those years, what do they expect to come out and be? A doctor or whatever. But let's, let's do the most painful route, a doctor. That's the most years, the most humiliation, the least sleep, Right? But why do they go through that? Because they want to become a doctor. And what happens um, in residency? I know talking to Gene, this was so funny to hear. Like, you realize that when they're calling somebody a doctor and you're in there, a lot of times they're the resident, which means we're giving them the varsity jersey, but they're not really, like, they actually never have drawn blood, and now they're going to draw your blood or whatever. That's Sorry, that's a basic one. But what I'm saying is, what do they go through? I'm going to shadow, I'm going to go to class, yes. We think discipleship, we think go sit in a class and we'll learn this and that. That's not, it's not a bad thing, but that's a supplemental thing, if you will, to the life-on-life, life, the hands-on training, especially if you're going through medical school and residency. You don't want to get open-heart surgery and the doctor's like, now you're my first one, Right? Hopefully, they sat and watched several, and then they got to hand the whatever they're going to cut you with, you know, and then eventually, all right, hey, I'm here with you. Do this one thing. 
That making some of you nervous right now? You're thinking about a surgery? Sorry. But we expect this principle. We know it. Electrician, elect, you know, electrician school, you become an electrician. A doctor in residency becomes a doctor. Someone who is being invested in and discipled becomes a disciple maker. The other way you see this, um, you, you will become like your teacher or you'll become like the one you follow. I used this in an illustration years ago. My dad's scared to come back to church now because one Sunday I talked about this principle in a different way. But I said, if you watch me walk and then you watch this gray-haired man come in this room and you walk, you're like, that's got to be Buddy's dad. I'm not going to do it right now, but I waddle. The thing I made my dad do, and it horrified him, but y'all got a great illustration, was I brought him up from the front row, and we walked from this side of the stage to that side, and y'all just erupted in laughter. Why? Why do I walk that way? Because I've been walking with my dad. I didn't go, huh, I'm going to walk like him. I just started waddling, because that's kind of how dad walked. That's exactly what discipleship is. The first principle, the defining of discipleship is you will become like your teacher. And here's the thing, the rub, and then we're going to move on. The question is not, are you being discipled? We're all being discipled. It's who is discipling you, because you'll become like the one discipling you or the one you are following. Many of us evidence that we are being discipled heavily, but it may not be discipled in the way of Jesus. It may be in the way of whoever your favorite podcast is, or your favorite pundit is, or your favorite, you know, person that's like, man, they just hung the moon and look at their life. It's so awesome. You and I are being discipled. We will become like the one we are following. The question is, who are you following? We're not going to go through this. Will you put up that, that graphic way of the world, way of Jesus? As we're talking about, we're trying to practice the withness and way of Jesus because we want to become more like him. And, you, and some of you may say, man, that sounds so boring. I mean, Jesus, he never did anything kind of on the edge or whatever. The very things that we want most in life is deep and lasting satisfaction, relationships where we know we are known and loved and we can know and love back, and we can have a purpose worth living for. You, you will never see a more secure and content person than Jesus Christ. You will never see when the pressure is mounting someone so poised. Thankfully, I'm not old enough yet to be shaking. Jesus lived poised. When he was threatened, he uttered no threats in return. How? He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. The way of Jesus, this is the fruit of the Spirit, if you recognize it. The way of Jesus, um, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. The other side, if those things mark you, this is not to make you feel guilty. This is to make you hungry. Because the kingdom of Christ and the way of Jesus is of hunger and thirst. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. If we thirst for the living water, the living word, he says, come to me, you'll be satisfied. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. The very thing that you think you want and you think will come if you just get this thing grabbed in life, if you just get this thing accomplished, if you just get this thing in your wallet or your Apple wallet. 
Just look at on the other side. Those are not um, uh, all mine. They're from J. Kim, who I, I very much appreciate. And he goes through and does a chapter on each one of where we are becoming a less loving, less joyful, less peaceful culture. Culture of outrage. But I love, he, he pinpointed, we have become so gazing on ourselves that our self-centrism, yeah, whatever, self, it becomes self-centric despair. And I think many of us feel that. And he says, Jesus would call us out of that into life and life to the full. Second one, I got to keep moving. The second one is you cannot pursue or promote two agendas. So you're going to become like your, the one you follow or your teacher, and you and I cannot promote two agendas. Mark 8 is where Jesus says, hey, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And he says, ding, 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 that's the right answer. Now you need to know that the son of man is going to go and he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be killed. And it's going to be awful. And Peter rebukes him. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. You and I can't go, here's my agenda, and I'd like to tag on a little Jesus. Here's the way I'm going to live, but you kind of owe me, Jesus. Or, you know, I know you paid it all, so I'm good. No. Life and life to the full is found in pursuing him, becoming like him, and then therefore it spills out into my life that I will share in his mission so that others might come to know him and become like him and share in his uh, mission. He says, he calls him Satan. That's probably not one you put on your resume, right? Well, I, you know, I might be good for this. And he just said, you've got a split agenda and that can't be my way or the way of my disciples. Now, quickly to conclude, because this is what I want to have ringing in your ears as we go through the series. Those are the whys really fast. Those two questions and these two defining principles. You, you will become like the one you follow and you cannot pursue and promote two agendas. It's got to be his or yours. But the way of Jesus making disciples is in Mark 1. Mark 1, 16 to 20, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went and followed him. Verse 17 is all I want you to see. Because I said, we've got to understand, if we're, if we're called to make disciples, what is a disciple? And I, I really appreciate there's several folks that um, have have done a lot of thinking in this and, and digging in scripture. They said, what if the invitation is the definition? Because we can go, ah, oh, but I can't make disciples because I don't, I don't have the content memorized and I don't have, you know, this background knowledge-wise. That's immediately where we go. It begins with an invitation to relationship. And, and it, you know, Paul will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But it's follow me. So commit to follow me. If that's been your desire to grow, hear his invitation. Don't let that reset that you do desire down deep and that he's awakening in you right now, don't let it fade. 
Don't go to Schlotsky's and let it dull the desire he put in you, which if you are in Christ, he has put his spirit in you, and that desire will resonate when his truth is out there, when Jesus is exalted, and when Jesus says, hey, follow me. I know you've been making a mess of your life. I know you're just, um, you're in self-centric despair. I know you've just been, I mean, who am I to make a disciple? I've been so irritated and angry and impatient. He says, follow me. Follow me. He called Matthew to follow him when Matthew was at his tax office. What was he doing at the tax office? He was bilking his fellow Jews out of money to pad his own pocket. And Jesus said, hey, follow me. Follow me. So we, we, are, we are committing to be with him. And he says, don't worry about anything else. Just start following me. And I will make you become. The first one is invitation. Follow me. And I will make you become. That's transformation. That's what you and I desire. That's the left side of those columns. I'd love to be more at peace. Uh, it, it, it horrifies me that you will become like those you follow. And so... Um, my sons, when, when they have a flash of irritation or an outburst of impatience, it's waddle, baby, waddle, baby, waddle, baby, waddle. Only a few of you know that song. That's sad. <laughs> it's not waddle, it's wobble in the song. But what I'm saying is the, when I see those hints in our sons, they're not getting that from their mom. They're becoming like, what they've seen when they followed me, even if they were trying not to follow me because they're being with me. He says, follow me and I will make you. The invitation, receive it and begin to follow him. Don't worry about if you got what it takes, I'll transform you to become. What do we see in Peter's life? That dude blew it all the time. Get behind me, Satan, denies Christ. And then Jesus says, hey, do you love me? Come on, follow me, tend my sheep. He is such a God of grace. He's such a God of patience. He says, follow me, I will make you. And then his mission will not only be committed to the transformation, that means we've got to stick in it when he starts to reveal some things we need to address so that he can be more on display and beautified in my life and yours. And he said, you'll become fishers of men. I bet you that those people, again, that you thought of, that influenced you, felt completely incompetent, but you saw something completely beautiful in them. Flaws and all. The people that have influenced me um, the, the deepest and the longest in my life, I know their flaws. But when I see some aspect in them that, oh, God is trying to work on in me, I just see Jesus in them because they're following him, not perfectly, but consistently. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. I close with this. I say this all the time, but as a church, if I had to say, you chop up what we're trying to be about, it's be with and send out. In Mark 3, when the heat was turned up and the crowds were getting larger and popularity was, and the, and the, and the disciples were like, yeah, let's build, you know, let's get a bigger crowd. Let's build, build big, I can't talk, build bigger buildings. Let's do this and that, you know, because they thought this is it. And we think that. Let's just do, you know, sizzling stuff and people will come. He says, no, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. That was the scope of his work. 
because of the sharing of his work was what God always designed for not just them, but to ripple to you and to me. How do we know it worked? In, in Acts 4.13, we mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This is after Peter and John had healed the lame man. They get brought into questioning. They get threatened. And all the Jewish leadership who knew their Bibles backwards and forwards, unlike Peter and John, they knew it some, but they were fishermen. It says they recognized and observed the confidence. Confidence is security. It's poise in the moment, no matter what the moment is. And their moment was a threatening moment. They observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men. There is hope for you and me. They were amazed. Amazed comes from transformation of uneducated and untrained country bumpkin fishermen living with such poise, living with such laser focus and convincedness. They were amazed and they recognized them, what? As being learned, as being on top of their Bible game, they recognized them as having been with Jesus. The simple question and invitation, no matter where your DTR is with him, recently, would it be recognized of you that you've been with Jesus? If not, don't bash yourself. Hear him say, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for the men and women and children even whose names came to mind in this place today. And I pray that the investment they made in each of us would not stop with us, but would become life-giving ripples to others. I pray that you would protect us from, from excuses, from, from doubts, from going, yeah, but, and simply hear you say, Let's hit reset. Follow me. Follow me. I want you to be with me that I might send you out. Lord, wherever each person is, may they hear your grace. May they know your new morning mercy today to live this out. I pray, Father, you'd give us the courage. More than the courage, Lord. I pray you would stir that hunger, that thirst to be in relationship with you, to be transformed by you, and to be on a mission that matters and will matter for eternity, and that you might use us in some small way to be a part of what you're doing, where we would glorify you. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a fantastic week.